What's up, everybody? We're back, and I'm in the I'm in the, I'm in the fucking booth. How about that, this man? This is crazy, man. In, in Kansas City, looking out at the field from John and Susan's perch. This is nice. I, I mean, yeah, this is a great seat. You know what's funny? Like, I can see in your face that you're you. It's the wheels are turning. That you're like, could, could exciting, I call right, games right. when I'm done? <laughs> that, am I right? Like, you started thinking that. Like, could I call games? I kind of like this feeling of the headset like, on. I like the optics. I don't yeah. know if I, I could do this, but I it's, just like how this feels. It's, this it, is dope. First of all, Kauffman Stadium is gorgeous. I think it's because of the stadium, too. I mean, you definitely don't feel the same way when you're at Tropicana Field. <laughs> <laughs> but but there are, I'd say you feel that way at like 85% of stadiums, this you know? Where you look out, it's just a gorgeous view of the field. I, th- I think, how about a... If we put, not odds, but if you were to say, at some point, me and you will call a baseball game or won't, what would be your bet? That it would be a 40% chance that we would. Okay. All right. All right. I'll take that. I'll take that. By the way, uh, you know, since... um, I feel like somebody's just going to let us do whatever, like, somebody's going to end up letting us... Do it how we want to do it. Yeah, meaning like not in a suit. Exactly. <laughs> that would be great. What if like if that became like part of the deal, right? For you, and then you're like, oh yeah, yo, Ryan doesn't have to wear a suit either. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I come in in my uh, in my bayish hoodie as well. <laughs> I like it. We we should also let people know, like you know, for R two C two, make sure you subscribe. And uh, and rate it yeah. and review it. You if know? you rate and review it, Ryan will definitely call you out or hit you back. Yeah, exactly. Definitely shout you out on the show. That's it, man. That's it. And who knows, Cece? Maybe at some point we'll do like a giveaway for someone. Like yeah, yeah like if the, you know, for we pick a random rater reviewer that we can give like a. I don't know, like one of our our R two C two mugs or an autographed uh, I got some jersey. Game cleats or yeah, something, yeah, you know game saying? cleats. Yeah. Let's do that. We yeah. could, we could you totally could autograph do that. a suit or some shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> one of one of my old ones I don't wear anymore. <laughs> this shit's too expensive Friend for me to get a new up, one, man. That's it. <laughs> that would be awesome. Imagine that they just get it in a big box framed. <laughs> we should totally do that. But uh, hey, we we you know. You love Kansas City. Yes. You've always told me about it. I, 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 I've had an incredible time here. I'm excited for this next guest, too. Yeah. I know that you, you, you got a chance to meet him the other day. And he's just, he's fascinating. Yeah. You know, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum here in Kansas City is something CeCe's talked about forever. Mm-hmm. I finally got to visit it. It's amazing. And part of what makes it amazing is it's President Bob Kendrick, who is just an incredible storyteller. And he's kind of like embodied the spirit of, of Buck now. Yeah, he right. He tells the stories as Buck, you know, so it's, it's fun to be around him a lot. So you don't just get to listen to Bob Kendrick. You get to listen to sort of the spirit of Buck, Buck O'Neill. O'Neill. For sure. Pretty cool. So here he is, Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum with CC and me. So what is so yeah, there's a red seat here at Kauffman Stadium right right behind home plate. Yeah. So what, what's the story? But that's what CeCe's looking at yeah. up here in the broadcast booth where he's never been. He's, <laughs> he's loving it. So what's the story behind that seat, Bob? That's the great Buck O'Neill sat in that seat for years and really all the way until the day that he died, mm-hmm. truthfully, because by that time, he was still considered a scout for the Royals, although, CC he wasn't scouting anymore. <laughs> he was doing the things that we all knew and loved, Buck. He was signing autographs, <laughs> taking pictures with fans, that kind of thing. But that was his seat for years. And so when Buck passed away, there was concern about what would happen with his seat. There were some that wanted to memorialize it. Mm-hmm. There were others who wanted the seat to come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And then Dan Glass, the president of the Royals, came up with an idea that was absolutely brilliant 
Today it is now recognized as the Buck O'Neill Legacy Seat. And for every home game that the Royals play, someone who embodies the spirit of Buck O'Neill, that caring, gentle spirit, really extraordinary people who are doing, well, I should say ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things to help others in our community. That's Buck O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the idea was absolutely brilliant. I tell people all the time, every now and then the idea comes along, you wish it was your idea. <laughs> 20 years from now, I'll lie and swear it was my idea. But it really wasn't my idea. So, yeah, every home game, and, and even into the World Series, those two years that the Royals, 2014 and 15, were in the World Series and the play- playoffs and World Series, someone from the community sat in that seat. And what makes it so special is that people are nominated. Mm-hmm. So this is nothing self-serving. People are nominated for the work that they're doing to help others in our in our community. And it was absolutely the best way to perpetuate the legacy of someone that you knew as well as I knew, the great Buck O'Neill. And every time I walked off, whether I was pitching or, you know, I mean, the first time I met Buck, it was, uh, you know, BP 2001. I just came out and popped out and. He was standing behind a cage, and I was coming over to give Ellis something because I had to bring his bats out or something. <laughs> and he was like, "Hey, big fella, I've been, I love what you're doing. I've been." I was like, "You know who I am? You know what <laughs> I mean?" So he was. I mean, he knew everybody, and and he wanted to, you know, be around, be around you, and and just tell you stories. And and uh, he was great, man. He was always fun for and, me. And and I hear that story, that same story, time and time again. You know, Derek Jeter told the same story when he's a rookie with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. He comes up. And there's Buck, because he was always here, and he was always down on the always batting cage. Here. He was always and here. And it yeah. didn't matter whether you were with the opposing team or the home team. There was Buck there encouraging you and wanting you to be the best that you can be. And Jeter had that same reaction. Now, he's mm-hmm. a rookie. He's like, Buck O'Neill wants to talk to me. Yeah, that's, and, that's what, yeah. yeah. Well, Buck, cause he was so just embracing. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, you know who I am? It made me so excited. So after that, every time I look for him, you know, and even like walking off the mound, after after games or innings or something, I would tip my cap to him and stuff. I always knew he was sitting right yeah. there. That's yeah. that is that's awesome. So, Cece, was he a guy for you? Like, you looked at him as like legend of the game, somebody who you one of those guys you hope at some point you get to meet, and then you develop a relationship with, and you're like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah, it's it's just like like you said, you're one of those people that you hope you hear about, you hope you get to meet, and and catfish hunter. I mean, uh, uh, catfish always talked about him. You know, yeah. he would always say. Uh, you know, make sure you, when you get to Kansas City, you meet Buck. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, just getting the chance to meet him and having that relationship was special. It, it was special, and he was special. And I feel so incredibly blessed to have spent as much time as I did with Buck. He and I travel all over the country together. I meant Mudcat. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mudcat, Mudcat Grant. Grant. Yeah, yeah, great Mudcat Grant, yeah. who we're honoring in June. We're inducting Mudcat into what the Negro Leagues Museum calls its Hall of Game. Oh, nice. Uh-huh. And we celebrate every year great major leaguers who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro Leagues. So you played it with passion, you played it with determination, you played it with high level of skill, but you also played with a little swag. Yeah, you got to have a little <laughs> swag. Yeah, you got a little swag. That's now. my hat to the side. <laughs> <laughs> and so this year's induction class includes the legendary Jim Mutcat Grant, Mutt the first Grant. African-American pitcher to win 20 games mm-hmm. in the American League and the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he started the Black Aces. Which, he, he was which killing me for that for years. I had to get yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. You know, only uh, African-Americans win 20 games. In a, in a major league in a major, season. In a big league season. It's, it's who? It's, it's 
13 or 14 of 14 us? 14 now because David Price is David part Price of that. David Price is the 14. David, David yeah. Price is part of that, that great group. And we'll be honoring another J.R. Richard, Big James Richard, Rodney yeah. Richard, who will be here in Kansas City being inducted into our Hall of Game as well, along with another guy you probably know, Kenny Lofton. Of course. Uh-huh. And Dick Allen, the great Dick Allen. Oh, nice. And, and Hall of Famer Eddie Murray rounds out our 2018 class. Oh, this is going to be a class. great. Oh, it's a great a great group. hall. Yeah, yeah this is great awesome. group coming in. And this is a, a good time for us to discuss distinguish too for the audience the difference between like people who haven't been to Kansas City they may not know just how incredible the Negro Baseball League Museum is which I've heard forever from CC, <laughs> and I finally got to experience this trip and get to hear your stories which immediately then I was like, Cece, we, we need to talk to See, Bob. So He's like, yeah, go, get him on the podcast. It's different when you go to the museum by yourself if you go with Bob. Yeah, it, it's a different it's experience. It's a different experience. Yeah, it's you know a different what I'm saying? Like, right. <laughs> That's like, it, it's like the pass you get at Disney World where you right? get to cut the line. And then you get the guy yeah, for the exactly. extra thousand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And, and and Bob could charge even more because he's that good. He's that good at it. But but a lot of people think like, oh, it's the it's the uh, it's the Negro Baseball League Hall of Fame. No, yeah. no, no. No, like, it's not. A lot of there are many, 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 many Negro leaguers who are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. This is the Negro Baseball League Museum, and, and, and it is spectacular. That. We did that for a purpose. Buck was very adamant about the fact that there had been enough separation in our sport Mm. and that if you were good enough, you should be enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so it was important for us to build a museum, particularly when you knew that you had a finite number of people that you could induct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so what would happen after you've inducted everybody that you could put into your Hall of Fame? And so instead, it was more important for us to preserve, educate, you know, about this piece of history than it was to create a pseudo Hall of Fame. Like I said, when you knew you had a finite piece of history, you know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when all these guys who played in the Negro Leagues are going to be gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so we knew that from the onset that this was literally a race against time. The people who made your history were all going to be gone at some point in time. And not only the people who played, but the people who saw them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so... It really does. That window of opportunity closes every time we lose one of those players. And, and so, you know, we, we witness. You know, none of us thought Buck was going to die. You know, and we know, we know that no one's going to yeah, live forever. Right. But, but he if, had a chance. If anybody was, it was going to be Buck O'Neill. For sure. So I, I saw a story on uh, Real Sports a couple weeks ago about a kid that was uh, going around the country that's getting yes. all the old Negro yeah. League players together. Yeah. And he was, like, getting all, getting them all connected, making them baseball cards. And, yeah. Wow. And it, it started off. His name is Cam Perrone. And at that time, he was a, he really was he a was kid. He was young. He was a 12. I think he, he's yeah. graduated from Tulane now. But uh, he fell in love with the story and just started becoming pen pals with these Negro League players. Well, when he discovered that there was an opportunity. Major League Baseball was providing a pension for those who could actually verify that they had played X number of years. Well, most of these guys, CC, didn't have their contracts or things like that. So they were having difficulty getting meeting the verification necessary to get the little pension that baseball was going to provide. And, of course, every dollar helps these, these yeah. individuals. They didn't have a lot of wealth. And, and so Cam was able to help do the research to document the, the service time that was necessary to help them get their pension. And then they built up this relationship. And then every year now in Birmingham, they get together for a reunion. Birmingham probably still has the most surviving Negro Leaguers of any city. I remember when, when I got involved with the museum as a volunteer in 1993, there were a lot of Negro League players here. But the players that were in Kansas City 
were the players who played in the heart of the Negro Leagues, mm. 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and see, now all those guys are virtually gone. There's mm. very few guys left who played in the 30s and 40s. Most of the guys now are guys who played in the tail end of the Negro Leagues going back to after 1955 up until 1960 mm. when the Negro, Negro League ceased operations. But I was telling someone the other day, the two greatest living major leaguers today, hands down, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, both Played come out Negro of the Negro Leagues. Yep. So if there are people who are doubting the talent that was there in the Negro Leagues, they are just an example of the, the incredible talent that came out of these leagues. And when I hear guys like Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin say that there were guys better and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, that is scary to me. (laughs) (laughs) And one of those guys probably would be Josh Gibson, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the great Monty Irvin said, I played with Hank Aaron. I played against against Hank Aaron. I played with Willie Mays, and neither of them are Josh Gibson. So now you want to like, damn, how good was Gibson? You know, and and he was. I, I tell people all the time, I think you can make a legitimate case that Josh Gibson was the greatest baseball player to ever play this game. But, you know, most people like the center fielder because that's the glamour position. That's, the, you know, the guys running and they making the catches. Gibson controlled the game as a catcher. That combination of power and average, you know, lifetime batting average of 354. And in head-to-head competition against major leaguers, hit over 420. Yeah. Yeah. And he was doing it as a catcher, and he caught his entire 18 seasons in Negro Leagues. That is, to me, unprecedented. Yeah, and everywhere Gibson played, he hit, and everywhere he played, they won. And so he was part of some of the greatest baseball teams of all time. And, and so, but that's, again, an example of the talent there. And Gibson dies tragically at age 35. He's 35 years old when he died from, as a result of a brain tumor. So it was a very tragic ending to one of the game's all-time greatest players. Now, when Jackie breaks the color barrier, Josh would have been 35 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and so we don't know if he would have gotten an opportunity because 35 is old yeah. by anybody's baseball standards. Be but careful, CeCe's yeah, 37. 37. <laughs> 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 you tell him. right now. <laughs> you know, and so that was one of the reasons that a lot of the Negro League players pushed their age back. Mm-hmm. They pushed their age Satchel back. Satchel Page. That's yeah. one of my favorite yeah. players. Yeah. 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 So Nobody because, really knew how old he was. No, they didn't know. <laughs> and, and, and he played it up to the hill. <laughs> he played it up to the hilt, and so, yeah, and the, the, that the lore and legend around him is built because they didn't know how, didn't old, know how he old he was. But you know what you did know was he was one of the most incredible athletes, and I don't think he gets this just due for athletes because you can't have that kind of longevity mm-hmm. in a sport that is as and tough as play. he won rookie of the year. At, I mean, he was almost 40-something years old. It's if, if, and won rookie of the year with the Cleveland if, Indians. If you believe that he was 42, right? which I absolutely do not, but if you believe that he was 42, yes. I mean, it's incredible. I can tell you now, the man that died here in 1982, had seen 76 a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my well, my dad loves talking in, uh, like, axioms and quotes and stuff, and so I've always had all these quotes given to me since I was a little kid, and one of his favorites is uh, – how old would you be if you didn't know, you know how old you were? were. From Satchel <laughs> Page. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. loves that all, yeah. all the time. And I love it too. And, and, and I know, feel, you know, like 12. So. <laughs> and, and I think he lived that. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was not going to let age defy what he could do. And, and, and Satchel was special. I mean, we're talking about a guy in his prime. 
They clocked this fastball at 105. And, and But what really made Satchel so special, and as you well know, 105 is pretty doggone special. Mm-hmm. The control. Mm-hmm. The pinpoint control. Man, he could put it exactly where he wanted to put it. And even as an old man, he never lost that. So you hear the stories of how he didn't throw to home plate. Gum wrappers. He was one. Piece of chewing gum wrappers. Chewing gum wrappers. He oh, laid out uh, yeah. with the catcher. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what he threw to, not the and, plate. And so Vin Scully, before he retired, tells a great story. And I asked Whitey Herzog, who was here a few weeks ago at the night that we were going to do the uh, Jackie Robinson Day game, Whitey Herzog was here. And so Whitey Herzog and Satchel were good friends. And Whitey is a out, aspiring outfielder playing at that time for the AAA Rochester team there in New York. Satchel's now have a stint with the Miami Marlins. This is 1957. So, again, if you believe he was born in 1906, he's 51 years old at that time. And so the Marlins are playing Rochester, and the Rochester team, guys, had a promotion, had a knothole in the outfield wall, and the promotion was that if anybody could hit a ball through the knothole, you could win $100,000. Well, it was virtually impossible. (laughs) Well, Herzog says he's in the outfield and he's running, and he decides to take a baseball CC to see if the ball would fit in the hole. Well, there's just enough circumference for that baseball to squeeze through that hole. He decides he's going to go over to Satchel. Satchel, you always talk about your control and how you could throw the baseball over a piece of chewing gum wrapper. I bet you a bottle of granddad bourbon that you can't throw a ball through that knot hole. Now, Satchel has a nickname for everybody. His nickname for Whitey Herzog was Wild Child. And he says, Satchel says, Wild Child, will the ball fit in the hole? Well, Herzog shows him that there's just enough circumference to squeeze that ball through the hole. Satchel says, wild child, I'll take that bet. And so the next day, Whitey Herzog says he goes into the outfield. CC, he steps off 60 feet, six inches. He puts the pitching rubber down. He's going to give Satchel three tries to throw that ball through the hole. Well, he says Satchel picks up the baseball and he looks like a hunter is looking through the telescope of his rifle. And he measures. And he says the first pitch goes in the hole but spins out. He says he's in freaking disbelief. (laughs) And he says the very next pitch, right through the hole. Man, that's awesome. Says Satchel reaches down, he picks up the bottle of bourbon, and he says, Wild child, I'll take that, and saunders off into the sunset. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great story. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Cece, how about for you, like, you know, as a as an African American baseball player, what, what do you? Is there are there different like emotional ties that you feel when you walk through the museum? Oh yeah, one one thousand percent. And I feel like uh, you know every player that that every African American every African American player that plays in the big league should experience that. Yeah. You know, because that's where we wouldn't be here without the, yeah. without those guys and the journey that they went through. So I want to know it all. I want to know you know you know the bus rides. I want to know all the stories. I want to know everything because I'm. I mean, you know, that's literally why I'm sitting here is because of these guys. So I owe them everything. So, yeah, I mean, I, I get excited when I see Bob. I want to hear stories, you know, yeah. just walking through the museum as many times as I have. And, 
you know, I just love this city now. Kansas City is, you know, one of my favorite cities, yeah. as everybody knows. And it's because of the museum and the food and everything. Yeah, else. exactly. <laughs> I got to experience the food today with oh, CC. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. oh, man. It was delicious. The seasoning on that fish, my gosh. It was buffet, fantastic. Man. Yeah, it, it, it was terrific. Now, we tough on vegetarians. Now, yeah. <laughs> you probably don't want to come to Kansas City. Not around here. So, uh, <laughs> this is not the place for you to right. live. I did no. that vegan thing in January. <laughs> yeah, was, not for that. But I can remember even like you, at one point you were like, "Yo, I think I think I could do this." Like, and then you're like, "But but I wouldn't be on it when I go to Kansas no, City I or when I go to like, <laughs> like maybe I could keep it up otherwise." Uh, you know, Bob, uh, you were telling me uh, yesterday. I think it'd be interesting, you know, for the audience as well, just how the Negro League started because I I do feel like this is a very untapped uh, piece of history. Of in sports that doesn't it, it, it doesn't get talked enough about enough. Yeah, yeah, how fascinating yeah. it is. And I'm sitting there yesterday enthralled by everything you're yeah. saying. I, I love baseball. I love sports. I love history. It, it's stuff that I, I think people, when they hear this stuff, they're, they really, they're like, wow, how didn't yeah. I know this? I need to. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really the answer, Ryan, is the fact that American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They left this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana out of the pages of American history books. So countless generations of us have gone through our formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And so you're right, that feeling that you have of how could I not know this is the same feeling that almost every person who visits the museum. They are amazed by what they learn, but they're dismayed by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn this. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at this story, and it's a story whose origins began in Kansas City. So the reason that a Negro Leagues Museum is rightfully in Kansas City is that Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. Rube Foster, the great Rube Foster, led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City. They met at the old Paseo YMCA, the future Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. And out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. The leagues would then go on remarkably to operate for 40 years from 1920 until 1960. Jackie breaks Cullerberry in 1947. The Negro League ceased operations in 1960, 13 years after Jackie. Why? Because it took Major League Baseball 12 years. That's crazy. Uh-huh, before That's every really Major League is. team had at least one black baseball player, the Boston Red Sox would become the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed Elijah Pumpsy Green. Mr. Green is still alive. Mm-hmm. He lives in the Bay Area. And so by 1960, the Negro League ceased operations because by then the best young black players had moved into the major leagues or into the minor league system. Mm -hmm. So they didn't need the Negro Leagues anymore. But if you question the impact of the Negro Leagues, just think about this one fact. From 1949 to 1959, nine of 11 National League MVPs were former Negro League stars. Yeah, see, the American League was very slow to integrate. The National League was far more aggressive bringing black players in. And so as a result, the National League started dominating all-star games. Mm -hmm. And you hear the guys, you know, guys like Bob Gibson and guys like that say they thought the American League was a place that old players went to die. That's what they (laughs) 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 So, you know, the impact that these leagues had on the game of baseball is tremendous. It starts with Jackie Robinson, and then, of course, that opens the door. But, see, the reason that the Negro Leagues are so important, as the late great Buck O'Neill would say, 
they built that bridge across the chasm of prejudice that allowed Jackie to transition into the major leagues and then bring forth these tremendously talented African-American and Hispanic ball players to give them an opportunity to play the game that they love to play at the major league level. Because despite what they had done in building the Negro Leagues, the world still said the highest level in which you could play was the major league. Right. So they all wanted to prove to the world that they were as good as anyone to ever play this game. And they were. Mm -hmm. They were. And Even if you look at the all-star games between the Negro Leagues and the, the major league stars, the Negro Leagues dominated. They dominated. Games. And that is dominated. documented. Yeah. You know, where some of the stuff in the Negro Leagues statistically is not as documented as we would like for it to be. Historians have done a great job going back and finally pulling together this data. But those head-to-head -head matchups and yeah. those barnstorming and exhibition games, those have been documented, and it bears out that the Negro League teams or the black All-Star teams won almost 75% of the head-to-head matchups. Oh. So there was never any doubt about their ability to play in the major leagues. It was just the social conditions of our time and fear. Yeah, fear had as much to do with keeping these guys out as anything else. You have to remember that at that time you had 16 teams in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. So these were good jobs. Well, when Jackie came up, guess what? He took somebody's job. So now that average major leaguer is concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the one that was looking over his shoulder. I don't think the superstar major leaguer was ever concerned about integration. Ted Williams wasn't concerned about integration because Ted Williams could play. Mm. But that average, Negro, that average major leaguer was concerned because if you allow this influx of great black and Hispanic talent in, I might lose my job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that had, so basically what you saw, Ryan, was they bring one player up and then eventually bring another player up so that that one player wouldn't be so isolated because otherwise you're just trying to make it on your own. Jackie couldn't, he couldn't eat in the same restaurant as right. his team. So that had to be incredibly he couldn't stay in the hard. Same hotel, like, so just, he's alone. Yeah and, yeah, and this is a sport where you need your teammates. Absolutely. I couldn't imagine not being able to go hang out with Guardy or go to dinner with you know, whoever. Yeah, you know, I mean, exactly. So that's like a part of being a baseball player is hanging out with your teammates. Right. So not being able to do that is incredible that he was still able to go out and play at a high level and win rookie of the year and be an MVP exactly. and take the team to the World Series. Like, that is insane that he was able to do that. Like, and, and you know how strong you have to be to do that? Like, and, that's hard, man. And, no and, doubt. And, CC, he's carrying 21 million black folk mm -hmm. on his back mm -hmm. when he walked across those lines. So he was never playing for just Jackie. An entire race of people was counting on this man to succeed because if he doesn't, an entire race of people fails right with him. Because mm -hmm. then the naysayers was just said, well, see, I told you they weren't good enough to play in this league. And then you got to think about it. Like every every black like family was the Brooklyn Dodger fan. Oh, Lord. My grandfather, no. Brooklyn oh, Dodger fan. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. You grew up in Mississippi, lived oh, in California, yeah. Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, whole, like, <laughs> Absolutely. So that's, that, you know, it's just a part of the family. Well, and, and, and something you were talking to me about yesterday, Bob, and I think it's so true, especially when you paint the picture you just did. Like if you think about it, right, not only did you have to have a certain ability and skill set yeah. to make sure that you are succeeding – bearing the weight of that pressure that Jackie was, right, with all eyes on him trying to prove that, right, that, that black players could play in the yeah. major leagues. But you also, you had to have a certain kind of temperament, oh, right, yeah, and, 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 and mental strength and intestinal fortitude because what you're talking about, CeCe, I mean, the things he had to go through to, have, to still have success on the field and also just being capable of dealing with that weight that you're yeah. describing. And, and I tell people all the time, the guys from the Negro Leagues who didn't make it in the major leagues didn't have anything to do with talent. 
It had everything to do with their inability to adjust to that social environment. You're in an environment where nobody wanted you to be there. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, Jackie had tremendous intestinal fortitude. And I tell people all the time that Jackie wasn't the best player in the Negro Leagues. No, man, there were so many talented players in the Negro Leagues. And that doesn't disparage Jackie Robinson because he's one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. He's a four-sport star at UCLA. Baseball was his weakest sport. <laughs> Much better basketball, football, track Try, athlete yeah. than he was baseball player. Some say an even better tennis player. So there was nothing, there was nothing that Jackie couldn't do. But there were other Negro League veterans who were far better baseball players than Jackie at that time. But he absolutely was the right man to be the first. He had the intangibles that better prepared him to deal with that racial hatred. Celebrated collegiate All-American football player at UCLA. Had a little cachet surrounding him. So he's college educated, had served in the military. He's disciplined. He would become married. He's stable. All those attributes will be called upon to deal with that racial hatred. Because to be frank, when he walked out on that field with the Brooklyn Dodgers, he was called everything. But as my mother would say, but a child of God <laughs> when he walked out on that field. Yeah. You know, and, and so when he came to the plate, they knocked him down almost every time. As a matter of fact, the opposing pitchers would oftentimes get fined if they didn't knock him down. And so when he would slide in the second base, he would oftentimes come up wet where the opposition had spit on him. When the opposition slid in the second, they came in spikes high trying to cut him. They did everything imaginable to break Jackie, but Jackie would not break. Some of those other Negro leaguers who had been so acclimated to segregation, they couldn't have handled that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've thrown a black cat on the field when Willie Wells walked out on the field, his natural instinct would have said, throw the black cat back. But then the naysayers would have said, <laughs> the naysayers would have said, see, I told you they couldn't handle it. <laughs> so you, you had to have the right guy. So, you know, there was always this question of whether or not Satchel would be the first. And Satchel, in many ways, was the Negro Leagues. He was a huge star. And Buck O'Neill always surmised that Satchel would not have experienced as much of the racism that Jackie did because Satchel was a big star. He traveled. Uh, he, had yeah, his, exactly. he had his own plane. He yeah. was traveling around all over plane. Yeah, everybody knew Satchel mm -hmm. Paige. But Satchel too closely adhered to what the, the establishment believed to be the stereotypical depiction of African-American athlete. He's too charismatic. Yeah, he's too charismatic. Satchel could never be his, himself when he got to the major leagues. He couldn't do the things that he did in the Negro Leagues. <laughs> you know, there, there was no way that was going to happen. And there was too great of a risk for a pitcher to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, of course, the question was we didn't know how old he was. And so the ownership group could say, well, he's too old. And only Bill Vec would have given Satchel a chance. <laughs> and I don't know if, the, if Bill Vec knew that the old man still had some gas in the tank. <laughs> But the old man had some gas in the tank. Yeah. And, and he knew he'd be a huge draw, which he was. You know, Satchel's, when Satchel, that year in 48, when he gets to Cleveland, he, the runs that he gave up that year came early on when he was coming out of the bullpen. When he finally got the mound and got a chance to start, the old man was lights out, man. <laughs> he was straight up dealing, you know. And, and so it was a spectacle. And everybody came to see it. You know, his start in Chicago. He's playing against the White Sox. And they got 55,000 people in Comiskey to see the old man pitch. They had to turn away another 12,000 who couldn't get in the wow. ballpark. Wow. Oh he my beats the White Sox 5 to nothing that game. Shut him out. 
They go back to Cleveland. Of course, at that time, Cleveland had old um, municipal stadium, stadium. seated over 90,000. They got over 90,000 people in to watch the old man pitch again. Wow. He beats Chicago one to nothing. Larry Doby drives in the winning run. Wow. And now at this point in time, the old man is off and running now. <laughs> you know? But he had been accustomed to playing in front of huge crowds all of his life because, as we said, everywhere he went, everybody wanted to see Satchel pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, he was pitching two or three innings almost every single day because everybody wanted to see him pitch. And, of course, Satchel being the savvy businessman that he was, he negotiated a percentage of the oh, game. He got a percentage of the game. Oh, yeah. That that he was is the draw, true. though. Right, yeah. You know, like he was the draw. Like they're coming to watch him pitch. So hey, every day though. He's like, I'm, then if they're coming through for me, you're gonna pay me. <laughs> Monday, Monday night, I was on with another friend of yours, Rick Sutcliffe. Oh yeah. Yeah, Sut, Sut of course lives here in Kansas City. Of course, between here and, and San Diego, but he's a Kansas City native. And so I'm in the booth with them, and we were talking about Satchel and and Satchel who was so charismatic. Mm. Now, he had the stuff. He had the goods. He could, he could sell it, but he could back it up. <laughs> but Satchel had all these names for his pitches. So he didn't have fastball, curveball, changeup. No, not Satchel. <laughs> Satchel guys had what he called his midnight creeper. <laughs> <laughs> he had the two-humper, <laughs> the bat dodger, the hesitation pitch. The long tom, the short tom, the jump ball, the trouble ball, the radio ball, the dipsy doo. And he also had his favorite pitch, which he called the b-ball. And you know why he called it the b-ball? Why? He says it bees where I want it to be when I want it to be there. That's great. I need that. I need that last night, I tell people all the time, there will never, ever, ever be another Leroy Satchel Page. Not someone who has the longevity by his estimation, pitched in over 2,600 games, the great stuff, recorded some 55 no-hitters, only God knows how many strikeouts, and the charisma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the charisma, because the charisma is the thing that I think that our sport is missing now. Mm. You know, the thing that I tell people all the time, the thing that we love about baseball is its tradition. The thing that has hurt baseball is his tradition. tradition. Yeah. yeah, we need those characters like you had in the Negro Leagues. See, back then, they knew that this game was entertainment. Yeah, yeah so you were going to see great baseball, but you are going to be thoroughly entertained, which, again, takes me back to why we created the Hall of Game, because that, that flair, mm-hmm. you know, that, that swag that these guys had, you know, it was just exceptional. As Buck would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something you ain't never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> and he said the major leaguers, the major leaguers would accuse them of showboating. Guy went in the hole, dived, flipped it behind his back, started the double play. The major leaguers would say, oh, they just showboating. But as Buck would say, it's only showboating when you can't when do you it. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't make the play, the play's being made. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? I, I always, like, I love, I love, like someone who when they when they pimp a home run or whatever, or if you you're on the mound, you're getting fired up. Or I think that oh, stuff's yeah. great. No, that's, that's needed. I love you know? that. That's part of the game. I mean, I, I never. If you don't want to see somebody pimp a home run, don't give it up. Don't give right. it up. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Don't like right. that's, that's it's simple saying. rules. If you, you don't want to see me. Yelling and cussing, walking off the mound, don't strike out. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, it's just, it is what it is. You got to – I love that part and, of the game. I really do. And the game is played differently now because I can tell you now, in the Negro Leagues, if they got you two strikes and no balls, 
man, you going down. That's the way they played the game. You can't do that now. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're very protective of the guys now. But, you know, they, they were going to knock you down. Mm. And see, Buck said he batted behind the legendary Hall of Famer Willard Brown. Willard Brown was outstanding. We were talking before we actually started the show. And uh, Willard Brown, when he went to Puerto Rico to play, his nickname was Ese Hombre. I still can't roll my R. <laughs> <laughs> his nickname was Ese Hombre, which means that man. And Willard Brown won the Triple Crown in Puerto Rico twice. So the fans in Puerto Rico absolutely adored Willard Brown. I mean, on the same level. And if you ask the older Puerto Rican baseball fan, even greater than Roberto Clemente. And Buck said he batted after Willard Brown in the Monarch lineup. And he said Willard Brown would hit the home run. He knew he he was going down. (laughs) He knew he was going down. He just didn't know which pitch. (laughs) That's great. You you know, for for people who – Maybe they just heard you talk about Josh Gibson before, and it's the first time they've ever heard of Josh Gibson, right? I, see, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who they they, they don't, don't know how, they don't they know don't. how good he, what what kind we know he's a catcher. What was his power like? Like what kind of player was he? Oh man, it's almost mythical. Like the power that he had. You know, he's still believed to be the only man to hit a ball completely out of old Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. But I was telling uh, some guys yesterday, as impressive as that was. I was even more impressed with the fact that he hit one in the upper deck in Yankee Stadium, food on a changeup, reached out with one hand and hit the ball in the upper deck. And they said as he was circling base, he was a jolly giant of a man. He's just giggling. He's that kind of guy that didn't know how strong he really was. He could poke you on the shoulder and it hurt. You know, just as we call it from Georgia, country strong. Yeah. yeah, he was that way. But the thing, Buck O'Neill would describe Josh Gibson in this manner, that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. So he was that rare breed. He was a power hitter who didn't strike out a lot. So he hit for a high average, 354 lifetime batting average in the Negro Leagues, 420 against major leaguers, you know, and, and then was doing it as a as catcher. As a catcher. Yeah. As a catcher. And he swung a 40-ounce, 41-inch bat, man. That, see, that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's crazy, man. Like, that. I don't even know what would be that. What's like the heaviest bat that you think one of your guys has? Oh, uh, thirty-five. Thirty-five about the about the about the heaviest now. You can't swing nothing more than thirty-five not now. Right? Yeah. No. I just do swinging a forty, 40 ounce yeah, bat. Yeah, 40, 40, 40, 41, Right? Yeah. Forty, forty-one. I mean, just strong. But I was telling if you if you want to separate at birth, looking who who he who he would kind of be comparatively physically. Yeah. Bo Jackson. Mm-hmm. Bo Jackson. Yeah. I've you know, heard both, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Both about six feet six one. 220, as Buck say, big, broad, chested, neat in the waist. I'm still trying to get neat in the waist. I got some work to do. I ain't never going to be neat in the waist. (laughs) Big, powerful forearms, big, powerful thighs, and he had that trademark rolled up left sleeve, so he's showing those guns. But, man, he just didn't miss. Buck said the third baseman and the shortstop, we're damn near in left field when Gibson <laughs> came up. I said, you all right, Josh, if you want to burn it, you can burn it, you can have it, because you could get killed down there. Yeah, you could get killed down there. I'll never forget, Buck tells a wonderful story. He says, kid from the Monarchs, young kid from the Monarchs had just come up. They're playing the homestead grades here in Kansas City at old Mulebach Field, which later became Municipal Stadium as well. And so the kid walks by the grades bench. He sees an old broken back on the ground. He picks it up. He's going to tease Josh. He said, Josh, this must be your old broken bat. Now, Gibson, like all great hitters, sitting on the bench with that big bat of his, he turns the bat, 
he shows him the faded out area on the sweet spot. He says, son, I don't break bats. I wear them out. Wear him out. That's, oh, a, oh, oh, that's a quote on Lil C's wall. Are, is it really? Yeah, it's, a, it's a picture of Josh Gibson. And it says, son, I don't break bats. I wear them out. Wear wow. Out. That is, come on. That is a great quote. That's fantastic. Yeah, Lil C had that on his wall for a long time. That's yeah. cool. Does Lil C ever ask you about oh, yeah. Negro yeah, he's Leagues? Been to, he's been to the museum. You take yeah, him yeah, to the yeah, museum? He's been, he's been here, yeah. Oh, that's Amber's awesome, been man. to the museum. We came, yeah. yeah. That's great, yeah. man. And, I, and I, know you, I, I know you take teammates to the museum uh-huh. as well. Like, yeah, Aaron Hicks has been over there. Yeah, um, brought Aaron last year. Uh, Marcus yeah. Timms comes all the time. Mm-hmm. When Curtis Granderson, when we played together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Matter of always... fact, Curtis called me when Toronto comes to town. He's uh-huh. bringing a group by. So, yeah, there's been a core group of guys, CC Curtis, Torrey Hunter, mm-hmm. Jock Jones when he was in the league, LaTroy Hawkins. Mm-hmm. These were the first group of young major leaguers who really started to come to the museum and you know, it was always special. It just delighted Buck. You know, Buck was so passionate for the 16 years that he helped organize and establish this museum and 16 years of serving as his volunteer chair. But nothing delighted him like seeing the major league players come to the museum. And it didn't matter that. what color. didn't matter yeah. what color yeah. they were. Right. Yeah, just baseball players coming to learn about the history of our game and the history of our country. He lit up, though. He took so much pride in the, yes, in the museum. Yes, he did. Yes, he just wanted did. to tell you stories. And yeah. if a player wanted to come over, he wanted everybody to come. You know, bring as many guys as you can, and, and we'll make it fun. You know, and it was just always – it was always about going to see him, too. You it know? was, as much as anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and the stories that I share now are stories that he shared with me. And, and so every time that I get to share this story with a new generation of baseball fans, I think for me it keeps him alive in my mind and in my heart. We don't ever want to forget Buck O'Neill. Buck was special, man. Mm-hmm. They don't make him like Buck anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people ask me about Buck all the time, and they say, well, what do you remember the most about Buck? And there were so many great stories as we travel all over the country together. But the thing that I think I take and hold near dear with me is the fact that you always felt better leaving Buck than you did when you came to see him. <laughs> and there's that's a great compliment that strike you that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he just had that. You know, and and so the museum is there to kind of continue to perpetuate his memory, his legacy, as well as the legacy of the 2,600 men and women who played in the Negro League because there were three women who played. And the last of those three women, Mamie Peanut Johnson, just passed away last December in Washington, D.C. And they were pioneers, women who competed with and against the men in the 1950s, with Tony Stone being the first, she followed by Mamie Peanut Johnson and Connie Morgan. And so we talk about that. We have a brand new exhibit inside the museum that brings out that little known but very profound story of women's participation in our sport, both as players, also as owners. And and so people didn't know that. But in this day and age when gender equity is such a prominent, prevalent and needed discussion, here was the Negro Leagues out ahead of society. They didn't care what color you were and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? What do you have to contribute? That is what guided the principle for in, in which they looked at individuals, whether or not they could be a part of this league. And so a league born out of segregation becomes the driving force for social change in this country. So what's not to love about this story? It, it, yeah, it's, you know, amazing. It, yeah. it's an amazing story. If people want to, you know, they want to learn more, they want to go to the museum, what do they need to know, Bob? Obviously, if I, I would tell anybody who's listening who – you know, a lot of Yankee fans, they'll go on road trips. Yeah. They'll, they'll pick a city or two this a summer. Do- this is one of the best ones. If it, you're a Yankee fan, you're thinking about coming on a trip in the summertime, pick Kansas City. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You, you pick Kansas City. 
CC tells you where to eat, and then, <laughs> and then you go visit Bob at the museum because yeah. you it, it's an it's an incredible experience. And I was even I was with someone yesterday who they don't usually they don't usually like do museums. It's not their they don't love them. That's not like something they they always look forward to. And they walked out of there and they were like, "Whoa, that was amazing! I love that! I was yeah. fascinated, so yeah. entertained, right?" So, no matter whether or not you're usually a museum person, let's yeah. say you will be entertained mm-hmm. and educated by this experience and you'll enjoy it. If you're a baseball fan, you love baseball, you love the game, there's not, no. there's no reason for you not to know this story and, yeah. be, and, be a, and come yeah. and experience it, there, for there sure. Are two places. That's right. As a baseball fan, I think there are two places that you absolutely have to go to. Obviously, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, which if you love stuff, there's great stuff I've never there. been to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, but the Negro League Baseball Museum, <laughs> the Negro League Baseball Museum, when you come there, you are going to be introduced to a story. Yeah. It is a powerful, compelling, moving, inspirational story that I think embodies the American spirit unlike any story in the annals of American history. It is everything that we pride ourselves about being American because it's about pride. It's about passion. It's about perseverance. It is about the refusal to accept the notion that you're unfit to do anything. So I'll show you. You won't let me play with you. I'll just create a league of my own. And then that league would rise to rival and in many cities across this great country of ours surpass Major League Baseball in popularity and in attendance. So you think about that. That is the American way. So even though America was trying to prevent African-American and Hispanic baseball players from showcasing their world-class baseball abilities in the major leagues, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And I think that's what people walk away with. We almost de-emphasize the athletes because we know you're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players that ever play this game. But by the time you walk away from this experience, I truly believe that you walk away with an even greater appreciation for just how great this country really is. Ah, That's so well said, and it's it's a beautiful embodiment of what the museum has to offer. So people can... Obviously, when they come to Kansas City, check out the museum. If they're not in Kansas City and they want to learn more about the Negro Leagues, how do they go about doing that? Please visit our website at nlbm.com. If you're so inclined, follow me on Twitter. I'm at NLBM Prayers. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm on there. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say about it in between. <laughs> you know, we try, we, try to, we try to keep everybody informed of what we're going. And, 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 you know, I tweet a lot about the history of the sport and share information in that manner, trying to take advantage of social media as best as we can. But, you know, we hope you put it on your list of places to visit. And if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the museum. Join the thousands of people, many of them who will never step foot in that museum, who have become members of our organization because they know how important it is that we save this piece of history. And not many of these athletes left. We're losing them seemingly every day. And so what stood at risk was that this story was going to die Mm -hmm. when that last Negro League left the face of this earth. Mm. We cannot allow that to happen. The story is too powerful. It is too meaningful. It is too compelling. It is too awe-inspiring to allow it to die when that last Negro Leaguer leaves the face of this earth. I tell our guests all the time, the Negro Leagues Museum doesn't need to survive. It has to survive so that we don't lose this precious piece of baseball and Americana. And, and if you're so inclined, we encourage you to join our team, become a member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and make sure that the legacy of the Negro League plays on long after they're all gone. 
Bob, this is terrific. We could listen to you tell stories all day, man. <laughs> Thank you for doing I'm this. I'm mad y'all yeah, didn't bring me no peace tree, right? man. <laughs> That's that right. That cobbler was good. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. No, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Cece, Bob. Great good to, to see you, you again, man. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Man, Bob was terrific. Could, he's, he's always good. Could, could listen to those stories all day. Right? The Satchel Page stories. And like, it's even better, like, when you're walking through the museum with him. Yeah. Because he'll just see, like, a random player, and he's got the story about him. You know what I mean? So it's dope if you get a chance to to go through the museum with Bob and, and let him tell you the stories. Because he's always there. Yeah, and it just co- it comes to life for you. Mm-hmm. It comes to life. And you know what? This is what's cool about this platform, right, for us, is we get to have this long-form stuff without worrying about it, right? It's not like, hey... You just call in for 15 minutes or something. We get to actually hear these stories. Yeah, sit down out. and hang out with people. Yeah, exactly. For sure. That's what we love about R2C2. Make sure you download, rate, subscribe, review, all that stuff. Plenty more fun guests like Bob. Plenty more great storytelling to come.